A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time and Thou. The terrifying thing, if that's what I mean, I'm not sure that terrifying is the right word, is that I'm free to write down anything I like, but that no matter what I do write down, it will make no difference to me, to you, to whomever differences are made. But then what is meant by a difference? Is there ever really such a thing as change? I ask more questions these days than formerly. I'm less programmatic altogether. I wonder... Is that a good thing? This is what it is like where I am. A chair with no back to it, so I suppose you would call it a stool. A floor, walls, and a ceiling, which form as nearly as I can judge a cube. White, white light, no shadows, not even on the underside of the lid of the stool. Me, of course, the typewriter. I've described the typewriter at length elsewhere. Perhaps I shall describe it again. Yes, almost certainly I shall, but not now, later. Though, why not now? Why not the typewriter as well as anything else? <laughs> of the many kinds of question at my disposal, why seems to be the most recurrent. Why is that? What I do is this. I stand up and walk around the room from wall to wall. It is not a large room, but it is large enough for present purposes. Sometimes I even jump, but there is little incentive to do that since there is nothing to jump for. The ceiling is quite too high to touch, and the stool is so low that it provides no challenge at all. If I thought anyone were entertained by my jumping, but I have no reason to suppose that. Sometimes I exercise, push-ups, somersaults, headstands, isometrics, etc., but never as much as I should. I am getting fat, disgustingly fat, and full of pimples besides. I like to squeeze the pimples on my face. Every so often I will keep one sore and open with overmuch pinching in the hope that I will develop an abscess and blood poisoning. But apparently the place is germ-proof. The thing never infects. It's well-nigh impossible to kill oneself here. The walls and floor are padded, and one only gets a headache beating one's head against them. The stool and typewriter both have hard edges, but whenever I've tried to use them, they're withdrawn into the floor. That is how I know there is someone watching. Once, I was convinced it was God. I assumed that this was either heaven or hell, and I imagined that it would go on for all eternity or just the same way. But if I were living in eternity already, I couldn't get fatter all the time. Nothing changes in eternity. So I console myself that I will someday die. Man is mortal. I eat all I can to make that day come faster. The time says that will give me heart disease. Eating is fun, and that's the real reason I do a lot of eating. I mean, what else is there to do, after all? There is this little nozzle, I suppose you'd call it, that sticks out of one wall, and all I have to do is put my mouth to it. Not the most elegant way to feed, but it tastes damn good. Sometimes I just stand there, hours at a time, and let it trickle in. Until I have to trickle. That's what the stool is for. It has a lid on it, the stool does, which moves on a hinge. It's quite clever in a mechanical way. If I sleep, I don't seem to be aware of it. Sometimes I do catch myself dreaming, but I can never remember what they were about. I'm not able to make myself dream at will. I would like that exceedingly. That covers all the vital functions but one, and there is an accommodation for sex, too. Everything has been thought of. I have no memory of any time before this, and I cannot say how long this 
has been going on. According to today's New York Times, it is the 2nd of May, 1961. I don't know what conclusion one is to draw from that. From what I've been able to gather reading the Times, my position here in this room is not typical. Prisons, for instance, seem to be run along more liberal lines, usually. But perhaps the time is lying, covering up. Perhaps even the date has been falsified. Perhaps the entire paper every day is an elaborate forgery, and this is actually 1950, not 1961. Or maybe they are antiques, and I'm living whole centuries after they were printed. A fossil. Anything seems possible. I have no way to judge. Sometimes I make up little stories while I sit here on my stool in front of the typewriter. Sometimes they are stories about the people in the New York Times, and those are the best stories. Sometimes they are just about people I make up, but those aren't so good because... Well, they're not so good because I think everyone is dead. I think I may be the only one left, sole survivor of the breed, and they can just keep me here, the last one, alive, in this room, this cage, to look at, to observe, to make their observations of, to... I don't know why they keep me alive. And if everyone is dead, as I've supposed, then who are they, these supposed observers? Aliens? Are there aliens? I don't know. Why are they studying me? What do they hope to learn? Is it an experiment? What am I supposed to do? Are they waiting for me to say something, to write something on this typewriter? Do my responses or lack of responses confirm or destroy a theory of behavior? Are the testers happy with their results? They give no indications. They efface themselves, veiling themselves behind these walls, this ceiling, this floor. Perhaps no human could stand the sight of them. But maybe they are only scientists and not aliens at all. Psychologists at MIT, perhaps, such as frequently are shown in the Times. Blurred, dotty faces, bald heads, occasionally a mustache, certificate of originality, or instead young crew-cut army doctors studying various brainwashing techniques. Reluctantly, of course, history and a concern for freedom has forced them to violate their own privately held moral codes. Maybe I volunteered for this experiment. Is that the case? Oh, God, I hope not. Are you reading this, Professor? Are you reading this, Major? Will you let me out now? I want to leave this experiment right now. Yeah. Well, we've been through that little song and dance before, me and my typewriter. We've tried just about every password there is, haven't we, typewriter? And as you can see, can you see? Here we are still. They are aliens, obviously. I have no measures of time here. No day, no night, no waking and sleeping, no chronometer but the times ticking off its dates. I can remember dates as far back as 1957. I wish I had a little diary that I could keep here in the room with me, some record of my progress. If I could just save up my old copies of the Times, imagine how over the years they would pile up towers and stairways and cozy burrows of newsprint. It would be a more humane architecture, would it not? This cube I occupy does have drawbacks from the strictly human point of view, but I'm not allowed to keep yesterday's edition. It is always taken away, whisked off before today's edition is delivered. I should be thankful, I suppose, for what I have. What if the Times went bankrupt? You know, what, what if, as is often threatened, there were a newspaper strike? Boredom is not, as you might suppose, the great problem. Eventually, very soon in fact, boredom becomes a great challenge, a stimulus. My body. Would you be interested in my body? I used to be. I used to regret that there were no mirrors in here, 
Now, on the contrary, I'm grateful. How gracefully, in those early days, the flesh would wrap itself about the skeleton. Now, how it droops and languishes. I used to dance by myself, hours on end, humming my own accompaniment, leaping, rolling about, hurling myself spread-eagled against the padded walls. I became a connoisseur of kinesthesia. There is a great joy in movement, free, unconstrained speed. Life is so much tamer now. Age dulls the edge of pleasure, hanging its wreaths of fat on the supple Christmas tree of youth. I have various theories about the meaning of life, of life here. If I were somewhere else in the world I know of from the New York Times, for instance, where so many exciting things happen every day that it takes half a million words to tell about them, well, there would be no problem at all. One would be so busy running around from 53rd Street to 42nd Street, from 42nd Street to the Fulton Street Fish Market, not to mention all the journeys one might take cross town, that one wouldn't have to worry about whether life had meaning. In the daytime, one could shop for a multitude of goods. Then in the evening, after a dinner at a fine restaurant, to the theater or a cinema, oh, life would be so full if I were living in New York, if I were free. I spent a lot of time like this imagining what New York must be like, imagining what other people are like, what I would be like with other people. And in a sense, my life here is full from imagining such things. One of my theories is that they, you know, ungentle reader, who they are, I'm sure, are waiting for me to make a confession. Now, this poses problems. Since I remember nothing of my previous existence, I don't know what I should confess. I've tried confessing to everything, political crimes, sex crimes, I especially like to confess to sex crimes. Traffic offenses, spiritual pride. <laughs> My God, what haven't I confessed to? Nothing seems to work. Perhaps I just haven't confessed to the crimes I really did commit, whatever they were. Or perhaps, which seems more and more likely, the theory is at fault. I have another theory. A brief hiatus. The times came, so I read the day's news, then nourished myself at the fount of life. And now I am back at my stool. I've been wondering whether if I were living in that world, the world of the times, I would be a pacifist or not. It is certainly the central issue of modern morality, and one would have to take a stand. I have been thinking about the problem for some years, and I am inclined to believe that I am in favor of disarmament. On the other hand, in a practical sense, I wouldn't object to the bomb if I could be sure it would be dropped on me. There is definitely a schism in my being between the private sphere and the public sphere. On one of the inner pages behind the political and international news was a wonderful story headlined, Biologists Hail Major Discovery. Let me copy it out for your benefit. Washington, D.C. Deep-sea creatures with brains but no mouths are being hailed as a major biological discovery of the 20th century. The weird animals, known as pogonophores, resemble slender worms. Unlike ordinary worms, however, they have no digestive system, no excretory organs, and no means of breathing, the National Geographic Society says. Baffled scientists who first examined pogonophores believed that only parts of the specimens had reached them. Biologists are now confident that they have seen the whole animal, but still do not understand how it manages to live. Yet they know it does exist, propagate, and even think after a fashion on the floors of deep waters around the globe. The female pogonophore lays up to 30 eggs at a time. A tiny brain permits rudimentary mental processes. 
all told, the Boganophore is so unusual that biologists have set up a special phylum for it alone. This is significant because a phylum is such a broad biological classification, the creatures as diverse as fish, reptiles, birds, and men are all included in the phylum chordata. Settling on the sea bottom, a Poganophore secretes a tube around itself and builds it up year by year to a height of perhaps five feet. The tube resembles a leaf of white grass, which may account for the fact that the animal went so long undiscovered. The Poganophore apparently never leaves its self-built prison, but crawls up and down inside at will. The worm-like animal may reach a length of 14 inches with a diameter of less than a 25th of an inch. Long tentacles wave from its top end. Zoologists once theorized that the Poganophore, in an early stage, might store enough food in its body to allow it to fast later on, but young Poganophores also lack a digestive system. It's amazing the amount of things a person can learn just by reading the Times every day. I always feel so much more alert after a good read at the paper and creative. Since the invention of the alphabet, it has been a common conceit that the markings on shells or the sandexed calligraphy of the journeying snail are possessed of true linguistic meaning. Cranks and eccentrics down the ages have tried to decipher these codes just as other men have sought to understand the language of the birds. Unavailingly, I do not claim that the scrawls and shells of common shellfish can be translated. The core of the pagonifer's shell Unavailingly, I do not claim that the scrawls and shell. Unavailingly, I do not claim that the scrawls and shells of common shellfish can be translated. The core of the pogonifer's shell, however, can be, for I have broken the code. With the aid of a United States Army manual on cryptography, obtained by what devious means I am not at liberty to reveal, I have learned the grammar and syntax of the Poganophore's secret language. Zoologists and others who would like to verify my solution of the crypt may reach me through the editor of this publication. In all 36 cases I have been able to examine, the indented traceries on the inside of these shells have been the same. It is my theory that the sole purpose of the Poganophore's tentacles is to follow the course of this message up and down the core of his shell, and thus, as it were, to think. The shell is a sort of externalized stream of consciousness. It would be possible, and in fact it is an almost irresistible temptation, to comment on the meaning that these memoirs possess for mankind. Surely there is a philosophy compressed into these precious shells by nature herself. But before I begin my commentary, let us examine the text itself. The text. One. Up, uppity up, up the top. Two. Down, downy, down, down, thump the bottom. Three. A description of my typewriter. The keyboard is about one foot wide. Each key is flush to the next and marked with a single letter of the alphabet or with two punctuation signs or with one number and one punctuation sign. The letters are not ordered as they are in the alphabet alphabetically, but seemingly at random, it is possible that they are in code. Then there is a space bar. There is not, however, either a margin control or a carriage return. The platen is not visible, and I can never see the words I'm writing. What does it all look like? 
Perhaps it is made immediately into a book by automatic linotypists. Wouldn't that be nice? Or perhaps my words just go on and on in one endless line of writing. Or perhaps this typewriter is just a fraud and leaves no record at all. Some thoughts on the subject of futility. I might just as well be lifting weights as pounding at these keys. Or rolling stones up to the top of a hill from which they immediately roll back down. Yes, and I might as well tell lies as the truth. It makes no difference what I say. That is what is so terrifying. Is terrifying the right word? I seem to be feeling rather poorly today. But I've felt poorly before. In a few more days, I'll be feeling all right again. I need only be patient. And then, what do they want of me here? If only I could be sure that I were serving some good purpose. I cannot help worrying about such things. Time is running out. I'm hungry again. I suspect I'm going crazy. That is the end of my story about the Pagano Force. A hiatus. Don't you worry that I'm going crazy? What if I got catatonia? Then you'd have nothing to read. Unless they gave you my copies of the New York Times. It would serve you right. You. The mirror that is denied to me. The shadow that I do not cast. My faithful observer. Who reads each freshly minted pensée. Reader. You, horror show monster, bug eyes, mad scientist, army major, who prepares the wedding bed of my death and tempts me to it. You, other, speak to me. You, what shall I say, earthling? I, anything so long as another voice than my own, flesh that is not my own flesh, lies that I do not need to invent for myself. I'm not particular. I'm not proud. But I doubt sometimes you won't think this is too melodramatic of me. That I'm real? You, I know the feeling. Extending a tentacle. May I? I, backing off. Later. Just now I thought we'd talk. You begin to fade. There's so much about you that I don't understand. Your identity is not distinct. You change from one being to another as easily as I might switch channels on a television set if I had one. You're too secretive as well. You should get about in the world more. Go places. Show yourself. Enjoy life. If you're shy, I'll go out with you. You let yourself be undermined by fear, however. You. Interesting. Yes, definitely most interesting. The subject evidences acute paranoid tendencies, fantasizes with almost delusional intensity. Observe his tongue, his pulse, his urine. His stools are irregular. His teeth are bad. He's losing hair. I. I'm losing my mind. You. He's losing his mind. I. I'm dying. You. He's dead fades until there is nothing but the golden glow of the eagle on his cap, a glint from the oak leaves on his shoulder. But he has not died in vain. His country will always remember him, for by his death he has made this nation free. Curtain. Anthem. Hi, it's me again. Surely you haven't forgotten me? Your old friend me? Listen carefully now. This is my plan. I'm going to escape from this damn prison by God, and you're going to help me. Twenty people may read what I write on this typewriter, and of those twenty, nineteen could see me rot here forever without batting an eyelash. But not number twenty. Oh no. He, you, still has a conscience. He, you, will send me a sign. And when I've seen the sign, I'll know that someone out there is trying to help. I won't expect miracles overnight. It may take months, years even, to work out a foolproof escape. But just the knowledge that there is someone out there trying to help will give me the strength to go on from day to day, from issue to issue of the times. You know what I sometimes wonder? 
I sometimes wonder why the Times doesn't have an editorial about me. They state their opinion on everything else. Castro's Cuba, the shame of our southern states, the sales tax, the first day of spring. What about me? I mean, isn't it an injustice the way I'm being treated? Doesn't anybody care? And if not, why not? Don't tell me they don't know I'm here. I've been years now writing, writing. Surely they have some idea. Surely someone does. These are serious questions. They demand serious appraisal. I insist that they be answered. I don't really expect an answer, you know. I, I have no false hopes left, none. I know there's no sign that will be shown me. And even if there is, it will be a lie, a lure to go on hoping. I know that I'm alone in my fight against this injustice. I know all that. And I don't care. My will is still unbroken and my spirit free. From my isolation, out of the stillness, from the depths of this white, white light, I say this to you. I defy you. Do you hear me? I said I defy you. Dinner again. Where does all the time go to? While I was eating dinner, uh, I had an idea for something I was going to say here. But uh, if I remember, I'll jot it down. Uh, Meanwhile, I'll tell you about my other theory. My other theory is that this is a squirrel cage. You know, like the kind you find in a small town park. You might even have one of your own since they don't have to be very big. A squirrel cage is like most any other kind of cage except it has an exercise wheel. The squirrel gets into the wheel and starts running. His running makes the wheel turn and the turning of the wheel makes it necessary for him to keep running inside it. The exercise is supposed to keep the squirrel healthy. What I don't understand is why they put the squirrel in the cage in the first place. (laughs) And don't they know what it's going to be like for the poor little squirrel? Or don't they care? They don't care. I remember now what it was. I've forgotten. I thought of a new story. I call it An Afternoon at the Zoo. I made it up myself. It's very short. and It has a moral. This is my story. An Afternoon at the Zoo. This is the story about Alexandra. Alexandra was the wife of a famous journalist who specialized in science reporting. His work took him to all parts of the country. And since they had not been blessed with children, Alexandra often accompanied him. However, this often became very boring, so she had to find something to do to pass the time. If she had seen all the movies playing in the town that they were in, she might go to a museum or perhaps a ball game if she were interested in seeing a ball game that day. One day, she went to the zoo. Of course, it was a small zoo because this was a small town, tasteful but not spectacular. There was a brook that meandered all about the grounds. Ducks and a lone black swan glided among the willow branches and waddled out onto the lake to snap up breadcrumbs from the visitors. Alexandra thought the swan was beautiful. Then she went to a wooden building called the Rodentury. The cages advertised rabbits, otters, raccoons, etc. Inside the cages was a litter of nibbled vegetables and droppings of various shapes and colors. The animals must have been behind the wooden partition sleeping. Alexandra found this disappointing, but she told herself that rodents were hardly the most important thing to see at any zoo. Nearby the rodentiary, a black bear was sunning himself on a rock ledge. Alexandra walked all about the demi-lune of bars without seeing other members of the bear's family. He was an enormous bear. She watched the seals splash about in their concrete pool, and then she moved on to find the monkey house. She asked a friendly peanut vendor where it was, and he told her it was closed for repairs. How sad, Alexandra exclaimed. Why don't you try snakes and lizards, the peanut vendor asked. Alexandra wrinkled her nose in disgust. 
She'd hated reptiles ever since she was a little girl. Even though the monkey house was closed, she bought a bag of peanuts and ate them herself. The peanuts made her thirsty, so she bought a soft drink and sipped it through the straw, worrying about her weight all the while. She watched the peacocks and a nervous antelope, then turned off on a path that took her into a glade of trees. Poplar trees, perhaps. She was alone there, so she took off her shoes and wiggled her toes or performed some equivalent action. She liked to be alone like this sometimes. A file of heavy iron bars beyond the glade of trees drew Alexandra's attention. Inside the bars, there was a man dressed in a loose-fitting cotton suit, pajamas most likely, held up about the waist with a sort of rope. He sat on the floor of his cage without looking at anything in particular. The sign at the base of the fence read, Cordate. How lovely, Alexandra exclaimed. Actually, that's, that's a very old story. I tell it a different way every time. Sometimes it goes on from the point where I left off. Sometimes Alexandra talks to the man behind the bars. Sometimes they fall in love and she tries to help him escape. Sometimes they're both killed in the attempt, and that is very touching. Sometimes they get caught and are put behind the bars together. But because they love each other so much, imprisonment is easy to endure. That is also touching in its way. Sometimes they make it to freedom. After that, though, after they're free, I never know what to do with the story. However, I'm sure that if I were free myself, free of this cage, it would not be a problem. One part of the story doesn't make much sense. Who would put a person in a zoo? Me, for instance. Who would do such a thing? Aliens? Are we back to aliens again? Who can say about aliens? I don't know anything about them. My theory, my best theory, is that I'm being kept here by people, just ordinary people. It's an ordinary zoo, and ordinary people come by to look at me through the walls. They read the things I type on this typewriter as it appears on a great illuminated billboard, like the one that spells out the news headlines around the sides of the Times Tower on 42nd Street. When I write something funny, they may laugh. And when I write something serious, such as an appeal for help, they probably get bored and stop reading. Or vice versa, perhaps. In any case, they don't take what I say very seriously. None of them care that I'm inside here. To them, I'm just another animal in a cage. You might object that a human being is not the same thing as an animal, but isn't he, after all? They, the spectators, seem to think so. In any case, none of them is going to help me get out. None of them thinks it's at all strange or unusual that I'm here. None of them thinks that it's wrong. That's the terrifying thing. Terrifying? Nah, it's not terrifying. How can it be? It's only a story after all. Maybe you don't think it's a story because you're out there reading it on a billboard. But I know it's a story because I have to sit here on this stool making it up. Oh, it might have been terrifying once upon a time when I first got the idea. But I've been here now for years, years. The story has gone on for far too long. Nothing can be terrifying for years on end. I only say it's terrifying because, you know, I have to say something, something or other. The only thing that could terrify me now is if someone were to come in, if they came in and said, all right, Dish, you can go now. That truly would be terrifying. Hello, that was uh, The Squirrel Cage by Thomas M. Dish, written in 1967. Uh, with me to discuss it are my fellow host, Mark Sinker, and our guest, Richard Tunnicliffe. Um, Mark, can you just tell us a little bit, before we start talking about the story, a little bit about Dish himself. Now, he died uh, this year. 
didn't he? Yeah, he did. He died uh, either on the 4th or the 5th of July. Uh, he shot himself in his flat in uh, in New York. Um, considered to be depression or um, related to the fact that he, he wasn't well. His lover had uh, died three or four years ago, 2005, I think. He was being evicted from the flat. They'd lived in together for a, a very long time. And I think a lot of related things to do with the political world situation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a sad, a sad story. He, he's a bleak writer, as as we've probably yeah. gathered from uh, from this story. And uh, his outlook was generally the, the dark side of things, although I think in this story and in a lot of his work, there's there's um, flashes of, of humour as well. But on the whole, he thought things didn't end well. In a way, I think he was the uh, leading representative of the American New Wave in the UK, if that makes sense. No, what do this, you mean by that? This was this story was published in New Worlds in 1967, which was um, pretty much at its uh, the height of its influence then uh, under Michael Moorcock. Um, and he would have been a young man at this point. He would, was 26 or 27 when he wrote this. I think he was born in 1940. Um, and he was a New York writer? He he moved to New York. He was born in Des Moines, uh, the son of a, a magazine salesman. He moved to New York. He was culturally ambitious, very, very talented as a writer, but very caught up in science fiction as well as he was a poet published poet, critic. So he kind of was living this exciting life in New York City, dashing around from 42nd Street to 23rd Street and all this stuff, the way that he talks. I, I, think, I think he was, yeah. He was, yeah. He, was, he was a spear carrier at the Met for a while as well, part of his, uh, you know. Wait, now, is that a euphemism for something? Uh, I, no, I, that's, that's just what I read. But it, the Metropolitan Opera in New York, I what? think he led the, uh, <laughs> um, the chorus. Really? Oh, he was their sort of uh, union leader or something. I don't know exactly what right, the details right, are, right. but for a while that was... So he was caught up in the sort of high cultural side of it, yeah. but science fiction was where he he had his sort of obvious start. And in a sense, as clearly happens with a lot of science fiction writers, as soon as you've done that, then you're sort of ruled out from you know the New York Review of Books and the New Yorker will never look at you properly, that kind of thing. Even though he was a well-respected poet, he was a critic. So you know, in some respects, I think he his uh, cultural cultural life and as a science fiction writer definitely was very successful. So you you'd read this story before. I'd never read it before. Richard, what did you think of it when you read it? Um, it didn't necessarily read as a science fiction story. The on the first time through, there were there were a couple of things in there which made me think about. Possible science fiction things. Well, I'll, I'll I might talk about that a bit more later. But um, the big thing that kind of stood out from it was this kind of: I am a writer, and I am writing to you, my audience. But whatever I do, I, I never really get any reaction back. It's very much a one-way process. It was a it was writing about writing, yeah. Um, which can be good, and um, something so, some pieces like that I've really enjoyed. This one, insofar as it goes, as being a piece about writing about writing i found it a bit well almost whiny to be honest uh because it kind of 
hammer, repeatedly hammered home this kind of one-sidedness of the process. So I'm not that big of a fan of it as a piece, insofar as it's kind of surface kind of idea of a piece about writing. I didn't particularly enjoy it on that level. There are um, other levels to take it on, though, aren't there? Or I, are I there? Think, well, I don't I know. I think it's the more you read it, the more it seems to present itself as a kind of all-purpose allegory, and that he was pretty well aware of that. And when you say all-purpose, what do you mean? Like for well, different on things? on one side, that, that it is like this kind of story we're talking about, the writer writing about writing, so not dissimilar from the Schoenfeld story we read last in the last series, built it up logically. But it's where that, the politics of that was sort of anarchist irrepressibility, really, that somehow the, the characters fight back against the tyranny of the author and, and essentially win. In this case, the it, it's it's a very gloomy that the power, whoever the power resides with, ends up winning and and he's also fr- i mean he the last thing he says the last thing that the uh the narrative character who he gives his own name of course says is that if he were offered freedom that would be the most frightening thing of all dish dish has a, a literary quality which is you know prior to the arrival of the new wave is simply assumed not to be present in science fiction and then subsequently as it arrives in science fiction, it becomes this uh, fantastic opportunity, which is also somehow constantly a problem. Now, what what is that literary quality? That well, in hadn't... some ways, I think it is being able to craft exactly the sentence you want. I mean, he was a poet; he thought a lot about sentences all his life. Um, but it's also thinking about um, what the story is a metaphor of. In other words, what a sort of golden age science fiction writer and maybe a silver age science fiction writer, the, they weren't necessarily in control of the metaphor that they were um, unleashing on us, that it was coming up from their unconscious and we got to discuss what it was about, mm-hmm. but they didn't get to play with the idea in the story because that was what literary people did, not pulp writers so the, the, you, you mentioned a couple of allegories but both of you the allegory of which you weren't particularly taken by richard of, of the writer possibly having writer's block um or in any way in the, in the act of writing and um there are other allegories as well with this uh, i i think his it's not so much i mean writer's block is is one of the games he's playing with it but in in sure. a way what it's it's a fear of the reader that he's um a fear of the reader's desire that he's he's uh, playing with. So well, he, he he hypothesizes the reader as three different entities uh, that he comes back to at one point. The first entity is uh, aliens. That's the first choice. So something totally other than him that there's no way to even grasp. Uh, scientists of some description and then military men. But he also has the thing that, that the readers are the animal trapped in this story um, is is a human being stared at by other humans and the whole circuit of it is as if it were some zoo or or what he calls a squirrel cage which i kind of wants to ask you is that a particularly american idea because if it if it was called a ham the hamster cage <laughs> that would seem to me a perfect perfectly sort of uh acceptable unexceptional 
name for this story, but the squirrel cage is like yeah, no, <laughs> that was totally what my reaction was. I I assumed that this had some meaning. The fact it was a squirrel that's normally a uh, wild animal um, is in this situation. Whereas if it had been a hamster I, in a hamster wheel, I would have just gone yeah, whatever. So this isn't a common thing in in, in the states. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> the other thing that's going on in this story is. The other side of imagining what the readership is, is that he's actually, this is the thing that I think is is a, an idea a bit like something in Beckett, that in order to get through the sameness of the day, he's having to imagine stories. And essentially, he's it come, what, what you feel that he's doing is he's having to write the New York Times himself in order to read it. Although I suspect, because this is the kind of writer that Dish was, that the stories he actually mentions being in the particular dates that he says in the New York Times are real stories, because that would be the kind of thing he would do. Um, I, you get this feeling that the the protagonist is isn't sure if he's just making up that you know they may be being made up for him, or maybe somehow he's writing these stories because. He does. He writes at least two stories, and one of them is so involved in a particular story that he's actually in the paper on a particular date. And the pogonophore is a is a an actual creature. It's the um, those uh, very long um, tubular worms which live by the volcano vents at the bottom of the Atlantic, which were discovered. I mean, I assume at the point when he says they were at some point in the sixties or the fifties. Yeah. No, no, I think the... I think it was early. I think they were discovered in the nineteen hundred or, or so, something like that. But um, but they apparently they still don't scientists still don't uh, quite know. Uh, marine biologists don't know what phylum to put them in. Well, um, they have that pogonophora is well, their separate phylum, yeah. but it is a sort of <laughs> a pun. That's definite, and it. Again, I don't know what the science, the timing of the science is, but it's now when they're talked about, they're talked about the fact that their ecosphere is um, hermetic, that they don't actually connect to ours at all because they live by these vents and they live off sulfur fumes. And you feel like that's where he is writing yeah, this story, exactly. you know? I mean, it's yeah, just exactly. incredibly lonely. But that was the thing. I mean, I actually didn't check to see if they were real. I assumed he'd made them up because they were such a perfect metaphor for everything, for the outer story around them. So um, it was kind of the fact they're real is just maybe he read it and spun the whole story from that. I don't know. It seems like. Well, I mean, I, to me, this one barely qualifies as science fiction. It's, I mean, there's there's no, the, he he's describing a strange environment, but I don't. There's something there's something missing from it that's usually in what we call science fiction. And what is the thing that's missing? I mean, there's aliens that he's hypothesized. He has a an impossible room where impossible things happen. A newspaper gets taken away every day without him noticing that it has been taken away. Uh, he has a nozzle for food. All very strange, possibly futuristic kinds of things. But for some reason, there's just something that's that that usually you get from science fiction that he doesn't quite give you in this. And what, what what do you think that is, Richard? Do you, do you... When I was first reading this, I didn't realise when it was written. And um, I started reading various elements of AI, artificial intelligence stuff, into it that had kind of happened afterwards, bits of research, bits of things that become more, popular no um, more popularly known. 
um, onto it. Um, as I mean, I was no, going when you mean AI, you're not talking about the movie. No. You're talking, I mean, about, you're talking about the actual field of study. Of artificial intelligence, yes. yeah. And bits of cognitive science relate to it. Um, so I was saying that, and part of the kind of thing that triggered this off was the use of the word uh, programmatically somewhere in the second paragraph of it. Okay, that one went right by no, me. But, well, uh... he, he, it actually says, I ask more questions these days than formerly. I am less programmatic altogether. Uh -huh. I wonder, is that a good thing? And on the second, I didn't notice on the first reading, the second time through I picked up on that and started, I started reading it as though he was in some way a program, as though he was sitting in an environment where he was receiving input in a very limited form and producing output. And it was almost like he himself was an artificial intelligence experiment. And put in that framework, it was it, you could read it as a story of an AI, AI program that's achieved consciousness and sort of gone mad in the process. Yeah. Uh, because it's, and he's just he's being fed with copies of the New York Times, Times every day. And he's just producing something.
Rick, who are the numbskulls? <laughs> um, Enlighten the poor benighted American. This goes back to the whole um, artificial intelligence thing and the kind of notion of um, there being... Well, the numbskulls themselves are little people who live inside your body. It was a strip in the Beano for many, many years. Beano, 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 no, it can't... was in the Beezer, I think. It wasn't actually ever in the Beano, but it was in that that family. Okay. The, these are comic books. Yes. Yeah. They're, they're kids' comics. Yeah. All right. So, so it's a strip, right? And they, they're, little, they're little dudes who live inside your body? Yeah, and they okay. have specific functions. Like you have some for um, thinking, and you have some for seeing, and you have some for hearing, and you have some for kind of powering your legs. On little cycles. So it's like in the what's the Woody Allen movie where there's all yeah no that's it's exactly like all that. the guys in his brain kind of yeah. helping him yeah. have sex you know and they're all all hands on deck you know all that, that sort of that thing. type of thing yeah. yeah there wasn't much sex involved in this particular strip <laughs> yeah. because it was aimed at like seven year olds all right but, but you know yes but the the reason this is kind of relevant is is again it goes goes back to the other thing that you've got a guy who's sitting in a room kind of. Process. He's just an information processor. He doesn't do anything else. And in the same way, the the, the kind of pognophore sitting there in its tube, it doesn't have to eat, doesn't do anything. It just goes up and down and writes its uppity, uppity, uppity on its shell mm -hmm. and its mm -hmm. downity, downity, downity on the other side. And this is almost like what it would be like to be the chief thinking numbskull. All you do is you process information. Nothing you do really has any effect on your immediate environment. You're just sending orders out and you're receiving input processed by the eye numbskulls who are sitting there with their binoculars inside people's eyeballs doing that. And basically, it's kind of like if you were the chief numbskull, you would go mad because nothing you do makes a difference. And this is something that bangs on about the, the lack of making a difference yeah. here. And this again spins on to the whole um, idea of um, what it means to be a disembodied mind. Because he, he mentions his body, he does things with it, but fundamentally all his basic bodily functions are met. Um, and again, the pognophore itself doesn't have to eat. It just sits and it exists and it processes information. But so he's, he's worrying about whether anything makes a difference and he's obsessed with this. But at the same time, he's incredibly particular and specific about the words that he chooses and uses. And he, and he, and he, uh, he agonizes over them. He keeps coming back from the beginning to the end. He keeps coming back. Is terrifying? Is that the right word? And is there something about tiny differences in this story? Tiny, small uh, differences that... Well, I mean, I, I guess the paradox of it is that the writer, who is Thomas Ditch, is also a poet. And the idea of a, a poet is the opposite of the guy in the Chinese room, which is that he is constantly using words and language, drawing from the collective understanding or local understandings and playing those off against other local understandings or particular things that a poet has seen about connections or read in another poem and running that against the way people ordinarily think of a word. So although poets are, by, ne by the nature of their craft, often solitary, in some ways also their their work is, is a... You know, it requires a social dimension of um, some force and complexity. So 
yeah, the the um, contradiction of the in the middle of this story. And again, I don't think this is a mistake. I don't think it's an error on Dish's part. I think he's very aware of this, that the the guy there is a poet, thinks of himself as a poet, and therefore is using language with a broad grasp of its social elaboration, which means knowing that other people do exist and now are using it. Rick, do you have something you want to add to that? Yeah, just one weird technical point in the in the um, piece was that he mentions quite specifically that his typewriter doesn't have a carriage return or any tabbing on, which obviously, if you're a poet, might be quite significant. Because There's not even any paper. Yeah, or he can't write, or, or he can't read what he's written. He can't read what he's written. But the lack of this carriage return and, and tab is emphasised. And then immediately afterwards, you get a bit of text which is tabbed, <laughs> and this, it might just be a mistake, but I cannot believe that it is. So I didn't even notice There's then. something in that going on, and I, I don't know what, but I just thought I'd point that out because well, like really he's, he's spooked me. Well, he's, he's done it, but he doesn't know if he's done it. He just has to sort of trust that he's no, done it. No, but there's no key on the typewriter. Oh, I see. That's the thing. He specifically <laughs> says there is no way of making a tab or doing a carriage return, and yet this text is very precisely formatted. So, Do you guys think that he's saying something about bodies and physicality? With yeah. the story, yeah, I think I think there's definitely something in that about the distance. I mean, again, I, I given that I was such a kick about cognitive science when reading this, this immediately brought home the idea of the disembodied mind and its flip side, the embodied mind. And and I don't know if this is one of George Lakoff's ideas or whether it's just something he's taken up. But the whole notion is it's almost necessary for intelligence to have a body because to it has to have a point the intelligence does it can only develop in a situation where it has needs where it's in a situ um a system where it has to do things to fulfill certain needs develop strategies for fulfilling that needs and everything else kind of develops from that basic principle and he doesn't have to think about strategies for he anything he doesn't have to do anything it's all said. provided for and this this is what's so weird about the pognophore again because it's just sitting there and it doesn't have to do anything it's got this miraculous source of energy and it just sits there and kind of senses the world vaguely and scribes on its shell um, and presumably goes mad Describe the Chinese room Rick Okay, so the basic idea is you have a room and in it there happens to be a person who has um, a large collection of instructions and rules for manipulating Chinese um, Instructions and rules for manipulating, what do you mean? Well, not explaining what it means but Mo um, moving characters around, around? yes, yeah. manipulating symbols. Why would you do that? Because that's what computers do. Okay. Okay. So this is—it's obviously going to be a very complicated set of rules, but these are written down in big tomes, and this guy can go and look everything up. And well, then, what, what do these? What gets produced by these manipulations? Well, what happens is strings of Chinese characters that Chinese people can understand and make sense uh, get fed into the room. Yeah. And the person in the room looks at these and follows various rules connected with them, manipulates them in various ways, and sends out other strings of Chinese characters, as though he's having a conversation in Chinese. But it's not just him, because it's him and all the stuff in that room. And it's all these instructions are enabling him to do this. All he's doing oh, is... Oh, I see. So, so the instructions help him um, have a conversation with the people who are sending stuff into the room, but he doesn't know what it is he's saying. He doesn't know what he's saying, and more importantly, the, the thing that Searle was trying to get at was that the combination of this person doing the manipulation and these books 
are effectively allowing a Chinese conversation to take place. So it has something that passes the Turing test. So it's it's sort of like um, it's like you know when I think when they made uh, Beat the Devil with Humphrey Bogart and somebody else, they you know there's this guy down on the dock, you know they they thought well, this guy he's his face he's perfect he's got to be in the scene. And of course he didn't speak any English at all, so they're like well. Uh, will teach him how to say the words, his say his lines phonetically, so he's able to actually be in the scene. And if you watch the movie, he shows up in the bar and ha says something, uh, but he doesn't know what he's actually saying. Exactly. So is that that's the idea? But the key thing is, it's not just the person; it's the person in the room. And his argument was, the person's basically playing the part of a kind of central processing unit on a computer, uh -huh. and the rest of it's kind of the, almost the program. And he's saying is, the person doesn't understand Chinese, but could you actually say that the room itself understands Chinese? And he basically says, that's just silly, you can't do that. It's hard to grasp because Searle is, is, is rigging the argument. The idea of rooms knowing things in the first place is a, is a, is a hard thing to kind of grasp. I mean, it's, kind of, it's a kind of argument to absurdity, really, in the sense that he's just saying, of course a room can't think. Yeah. But, and you sort of have to think to yourself, after a while, maybe the person who's been spending years in servitude manipulating <laughs> these these symbols yeah. might figure a few things out. The, and this this is the the problem with the example is that the as soon as you place a person in it, the an person, actual living the breathing person, person cannot not behave like a person, and it wrecks his conception that AI is different from people because in order to model. AI. He puts a person in. It's just a like a, such an ill-formed example for the thing that he wants to show, because you just constantly get confused. And you know we're human, so we're interested in how humans behave in odd situations. That's what we're we're programmed <laughs> to uh, to respond. It still seems in in the in the ambit of science fiction, I, I think you're right to say that it has something about it which science fiction, it, it lacks something that science fiction has. But everything that we're talking about, you're thinking, well, why? Because it sounds like really... Yeah. It's, and I think I think it's, it's more like a, a flavour than it is an actual... than it is concept or device and the flavor is a sort of joie de vivre kind of cartoony joie de vivre which is really really almost always present in science fiction it doesn't matter whether it's dystopian or, or or nuts and bolts you know rockets and stars kind of thing that there's a kind of like yeah even the, even if science fiction is dystopian there's often a sense of isn't it cool how dystopian everything is and there's nothing cool no. about this world no. that and i think that's that was what was i mean i think that's why i think of him a bit as the poster child of the of the new wave because the new wave was at some point it was like hard and it was indigestible and it was saying you know there's the you know just the other stuff that we've been playing with is is kids stuff because kids always want the happy ending and and this is actually life is really ugly and that that was the thing that you know if you look at ballard i think that he's always saying this is cool it's like totally cool all people that want sex in car crashes how cool is that he's not a dystopian at all he's a very odd kind of a utopian um, he lives in shepparton <laughs> he's an odd man anyway <laughs> but but no i think dish was a 
you know, I think I think he he really brought into science fiction something which was quite was alien to it, and that is, you know, it's it's much more present in modernist fiction and a, a sort of supposedly more elevated idea of fiction, which is just this actually, you know, things aren't cool. Sometimes they're really horrible. Well, speaking of humans being in odd situations and um, people being trapped in a room, we are coming to you here, not live, but on tape from a kitchen in Clapton. <laughs> uh, and some of the sounds that you heard were um, the boiler, I believe, back in the corner there. Uh, that's all the time we have for now. Thank you, Rick Tunnicliffe and Mark Sinker. Uh, I'm Elisha Sessions. This is A Bite of Stars, A Slug of Time, and Thou. I am sitting in a room different from the one you are in now. I am recording the sound of my speaking voice, and I am going to play it back into the room again and again until the resonant frequencies of the room reinforce themselves so that any semblance of my speech with perhaps the exception of rhythm is destroyed. What you will hear then are the natural resonant frequencies of the room articulated by speech. I regard this activity not so much as a demonstration of a physical fact, but more as a way to smooth out any irregularities my speech might have. I am sitting in a room different from the one you are in now. I am recording the sound of my speaking voice and I am going to play it back into the room again and again until the resonant frequencies of the room reinforce themselves so that any semblance of my speech with perhaps the exception of venom is destroyed. What you will hear then are the natural...